0: Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being with us tonight. I am uh, deeply honored that I was invited to come and to be with you. A few of the people in this assembly I have known at other times, other places, and many of you I'm meeting for the very first time. Now, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but we're coming together tonight to try to study together. Years ago, I printed a business card. It said, hello, my name is Bob Buchanan, but if we're ever introduced and you forget who I am, you've lost nothing. But if you're ever introduce to Jesus Christ and forget who He is, then you've lost it all. And that's the attitude that I try to uh, live by. Uh, when we talk about this subject of Islam, it's going to sort of depend upon your background, your history, and maybe your age as to what you know about Islam. Now, for some of the people here tonight, uh, some of those around my age, is that maybe the only thing that you know about Islam is that you know it is a religion and you've been hearing on the news that it's one of the fastest growing religions around the world and especially in the United States. And so we want to look at what do we know about this religion? What can we learn about their history? And what do we know about what they believe? Now, for some of you, all that you know about Islam is that you remember when that... uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the NBA superstar, you remember when his, his name was Lou Alcindor, and he was playing with UCLA. But we find that in, just before the season started, 1971-72, he converted out of the Catholic Church to Islam. And that's the first time that some people in America had ever heard of that Islam. There are other people then that remember when Cassius Clay, the boxer out of Louisville, Kentucky, changed his name to Muhammad Ali in 1975. Now, he converted to the Sunni uh, Muslims, and I'll try to say something quickly uh, tonight about the Sunni versus the Shiite. But, so, that's all that some people again knew about Islam. But sadly, there are some other people, But remember that some bad things started happening. Back in 1983, there was the bombing of the United States Embassy in Beirut, Lebanon. Sixty-three people were left dead. 120 people were injured. Other people then know in 1992, the Israeli Embassy in Buenos Aires was attacked. Again, 29 dead. 242 that were injured. Some then know November 1997, the, uh, the tourist that were killed in Luxor, Egypt. That uh, here were six armed Islamic terrorists, uh, leaving 62 dead, 26 that was injured. There are others then that know uh, about the United States Embassy in Kenya. Now, I go in and out of Kenya from time to time trying to teach the Bible, and I was able to visit the memorial there. And they've got the names on the wall of all of those that were killed. 224 that were killed, and over 4,000 that were injured. And so some of you also remember in Nigeria, just last year, there were 200 school children, young girls, that were kidnapped. And they were given as prizes to some of the Muslims. Now, one of the young girls was only eight years old, and when this man took her for his wife... uh, Sadly, she had to then later be taken to the hospital and she didn't survive. And so there's a lot of things in a lot of these countries that are happening. Some of you remember the USS Cole in the year 2000. Seventeen American sailors were killed in that bombing. On Christmas Eve in the year 2000 in the country of Indonesia where I was just there just a few months ago, is that there were some uh, Islamic terrorists that attacked then several churches in eight cities, killing 18 people. Many of you then will certainly remember 9-11. And you remember what happened there, leaving 2,977 dead. And then there are many then that have been keeping up with the news. From September then is that uh, we know then things like the Boston bombing, and we know about many things in several of the shopping malls and even in the last week as to what happened in, uh, in Chattanooga. And so all of these things are on the news. And so we hear that word Islam or Islamic, but what do we really know about this religion? Why does there seem to be so much violence that is connected with Islam? What does our future hold for us? What do some of our friends, some of our colleagues, some of our classmates coming into the United States from many countries, what do they believe? What do they think about Jesus? What do they think about the Bible? So how do we talk to them? Now, the lecture for tonight and tomorrow night, and I wish I had 25 different lectures that I could do because there's so much material to cover. And uh, when we look at these lectures We want to know as much as we can about this religion and what that they believe, what they're trying to do, what conversion is to them. Now, let's begin with just some terminology because we've got to make sure that when I'm using a word and you're using a word, we've got to make sure that we're using the same definition. Now, when we use the word Islam is that that word is an arabic word as the quran the holy book is written in arabic and some of the devoutest of the muslims do not believe that the quran should ever be translated into another language now i do have the quran in three different languages i even have an english version which some of them really get upset that the quran has been converted to english but Islam is the word that is used to refer to the religion. The word itself means submission. And in any conversation with a Muslim, that's what they're going to come back to for the fact that it just simply means submission. Now, when we deal with terminology, is that sometimes you will see different spellings. You will the You'll talk about Islam, you'll talk about the old wording of Muhammadism, and that word was formerly common in Western u- usage, but it was never used among the Muslims. But you'll still see some of the old books uh, that will still use that word. Now, Islam is the correct word. Muslims believe that the origin of Islam dates back to the creation of the world. Now, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing about that. I just want to tell you what they believe on that. When we deal with the word Muslim, Muslim is a follower of Islam. It literally means to surrender or to submit. So, right up front, try to get those two terms in your mind. Islam is the religion. Muslim is the person. Muslim is the follower. So you need to get those in your mind in the very beginning here. I don't know why this doesn't want to move on to me. Now, Muhammad was the prophet and the founder of Islam. He was born around 570 A.D. and died 632 A.D. In many of your encyclopedias, many of the things you'll read on the internet, you will often find two or three different spellings. When you talk about Mohammed with an O, Mohammed with a U, the same way with Quran, you can spell it with a Q, you can spell it with a K. And so we're dealing with the same thing. So we need to understand that the spelling is not going to make that much difference. The Quran is that is believed to be the inspired Word of God given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. And uh, there are many religions that claim that they had an angel. The Mormon church had believed that they had the angel Moroni that gave them the discovery of the gold tablets. And so this is the holy book uh, to the Muslims. The Quran describes Islam as a deen. And that to them just simply means a way of life. Now, when I'm in India, when I'm in the country of Sri Lanka, when I am studying and working with, with Buddhists, they make the same argument. They say that Buddhism is not a religion, it is a way of life. Most of the Muslims will say the same thing. They will say that Islam is not a religion, it is a way of life. And so uh, that, again, trying to understand part of the terminology. The holy book that they have, the Quran, is divided into chapters. There's 114 chapters in the book. There are 6,236 verses in the book. Now, I'm using the words that we would use in English, chapters and verses. I have put on the chart, some of you are taking the notes, is that you can see here the wording that they would use in talking about that. When they're talking about Allah, they're referring to the supreme being. They say that is the name of God. Now, what a Muslim believes about God is not what that I as a Christian believe about God. Now, many people... uh They say, oh, I've got a, I've got a Muslim friend on my baseball team. And he just simply says that we believe in the same God. And, but there are many, many differences. In addition to the, what was written in the Quran, there was a collection then of the sayings of Muhammad. And these were handed down by oral tradition. And so it goes from generation to generation as to where that somebody says, well, Muhammad said, Muhammad said, Muhammad said, and then finally then it gets written down. And so there are sometimes some discrepancies in what that he said. The city of Mecca is also spelled in two different ways. And this was the birthplace of Muhammad and is considered the holy city uh, of Islam. Medina. Is the name the uh, the holy city that was named for Muhammad after they attempted to kill him in Mecca? Then he fled to Medina, and that so that was considered then his home uh, in later years. You will hear many times the Muslims talking about uh, their Hijra, and so that was the flight that Muhammad did, going from Mecca to Medina in the year 622, a strong Muslim believes that one time in your life you must make the pilgrimage to Mecca. Now, I will not have time to go into the details tonight about the five pillars of their faith, but that is one of those five, is that you must one time in your life as a Muslim if at all possible, you must make the pilgrimage then uh, to Mecca and then to go to Medina. The mosque is referred to, that is, the, the place of worship. Many religions today would talk about a temple or they would talk about a synagogue. They would talk about a church building, a church house. And so the Muslims would just simply talk about a mosque. If you have seen pictures of Jerusalem they have in Jerusalem what's called the Dome of the Rock. Now, every religion claims a connection to that location. Uh, The Jews say that that is where that Abraham uh, took Isaac for the sacrifice. Uh, So Christians honor that place and say that is where Solomon built the first temple. And then the Muslims say that this is where that Muhammad uh, had uh, ascended. And, And so... There is the Dome of the Rock. A I was allowed to go inside there many, many years ago. I was back in Israel last year and they will now not allow uh, non-Muslims to go inside. But uh, the mosque just simply means their place of worship. You will often, when you're in an Islamic country, you will be awakened from your sleep and uh, you will hear the sound over the minaret that it is the call to prayer. And so I will uh, have another chart on that telling you about the uh, the five different times that you will pray. And so when we are dealing with some of these things, uh, the Muslims have a daily prayer ritual. Again, that is one of their five pillars is that they are instructed on the position that they take and they are given uh, instructions then on uh, when to do it. And so the first one is shortly before sunrise. Now, one of my problems is that when I'm in India is that you don't get a good night's sleep because you're going to have the Muslims that are going to be calling you for prayer when it's still dark and then you're going to have the Hindu with all of their sounds and, and symbols. And then you're going to have the Buddhist. And then you're going to have the Roman Catholic Church. And I said, do I get no sleep? But you see, as I so, show on the chart here, is that five times every day they must pray. When I was in Israel, uh, my bus driver was a Muslim. And we had left Jerusalem going down to the south. We were going to go down to the Red Sea and uh, it was time for the noon prayer. So he just pulls right off the side the the road. He has his little rug, his prayer rug, under his seat, and he brings out the prayer rug, and he sits it out on the highway there, and he says his noon prayer. And so here you pray once while it is still dark, shortly before sunrise. You pray once at noon. You pray then in the late afternoon. You pray just before the sun goes down and then you pray just before you're ready to go to bed at night. Now, devout Muslims in Islamic countries, they have strings hanging in the trees, black strings and white strings. Now, in the dark, you can't tell the difference between a black string and a white string. And so you're supposed to say your first prayer while it's still dark enough that you could not distinguish the color. And so it is supposed to be then before the sun rise. The worshiper uses different postures. He begins in that of standing, and then he will bow, and then he will prostrate himself. Now, I have seen many Muslims when I was in Egypt. I talked to a couple of men, and their whole forehead was bruised. I mean, it stays that. 365 days out of the year. And that is because when they're doing their prayers and when they finally get down in the prostrate position and they will hit their head so hard going into their prayer position that they keep that bruise on their head almost year round. Here is a copy of the prayer that should be said by a devout Muslim 17 times a day. And it begins by saying, all praise is due to Allah, the Lord of the worlds, the most gracious, the most merciful, and sovereign of the day of judgment. And so, they do their, their, what I call their common prayers five times a day, and in those prayers it is mainly just an adoration of Allah. And so, and then this prayer is done seventeen times a day. They use this expression, peace, be upon Him. And that is that any time that you say the name of any of the prophets of Allah... And let me just interrupt myself for just a moment. If you are talking to a Muslim, he is going to tell you, we believe in Jesus. And they put Jesus in the same category with Moses, with Abraham, with Jesus with Muhammad. And so they say all of these were God's prophets. Any time that you use a name of a prophet that is dead, as soon as you say the name, you say, peace be upon him. And so if you're in a conversation and and if, if you were to say, well, I was reading last night about Muhammad, they will immediately say, peace be upon him. If you were to say something about Moses, peace be upon him. And so it is an expression that is used to show respect. Ramadan is the ninth and the most sacred month of the Islamic year. They believe that that was the month that the angel gave the Quran to Muhammad and for that whole month it is considered to be a month of fasting. Now, i tell you what, I have been in several Islamic countries during Ramadan. It's not easy. During that whole month, when that you start to be able to distinguish the black thread from the white thread in the tree, for the whole day, you cannot eat, you cannot drink, a married man cannot have sex, there could be no cigarettes, and so, can you imagine somebody in Egypt, when it's 120 degrees, working out there by the pyramids, and he's not allowed to eat or to drink anything until it gets dark. And you do that for 30 days. And so, uh, now at nighttime, it's a party. As soon as it gets dark, uh, you eat and you party all night long. Well, if you're working during the day, not eating and drinking, and now partying all night, 30 days of this is going to make you quite weak. And before you know it, you start getting irritable. And before you know it, there starts being a lot of fussing and fighting. Shiites is the Muslim sect that insists that Muhammad's son-in-law was to be the rightful successor. Now, when Muhammad died, it reminds me quite a bit, going back to the Old Testament, to look at the death of Solomon. At the death of Solomon, who's going to be the king? And you remember the argument there. And we wound up with two kingdoms, the north and the south. And we wound up with two kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The same thing happened in Islam. When Muhammad died, now who is going to be the successor? And so those in the sect that is called the Shiites, that they insist that the son-in-law was to be the rightful successor. Now, the Sunnis, which is the largest sect, they said that any and all of Muhammad's ancestry should be the successors. Now, when we deal with the history, what brought all of this on? The Arabs believed in the unity of God... But they also claimed that God had entrusted His duties to various gods and goddesses and idols. And because of that purpose, there were more than 360 idols. And as we study history, this bothered Muhammad. They considered angels to be the daughters of God. And so what many of you here tonight might believe the Bible teaches about angels would be completely different than what the Muslims uh, would believe. They were ignorant of social values. They were nomadic people who were dependent on cattle for their living. There was no government and no law. All power existed with the rich. And you might say, well, uh, that sounds like modern America, is that... uh, but uh, that is part of the history that brought all of this on. The society was quite brutal. Tribes fought with each other over trivial matters for many centuries. And a slight argument over horses or over water could lead then to the slaughtering of thousands of innocent people. It was the birth of Muhammad which brought a revolution to the entire fate of the nomadic Arabs. And so when we deal with his history, Is that when we deal with his birth here, and uh, this keeps going backwards, and I don't know why. I'm only pushing one button, and uh, okay, it seems to be getting stuck. Muhammad was born in the year 570 in the city of Mecca. Now, the name Muhammad itself simply means highly praised. His father, Abdullah, died before his birth, and then his mother died when he was only six years old. It is important that we try to know that part of his history and as to how that, that affected him. Muhammad's parental grandfather took care of him and then he died when Muhammad was eight years old. The Quran states this. It says that God the Almighty reminds Muhammad of his blessing. Now remember, the death of his mother, the death of his father, the death of his grandfather... And the Quran says, did God not find you an orphan and give you shelter and give you care? And He found you water, wandering and He gave you guidance and He found you in need and He made you independent. At the age of 12, Muhammad started working as a trader. Soon, he became very popular. Soon, he became famous because of his loyalty and because his, of his reliability. Now, when he was 25 years old, he was propositioned by a merchant widow who was 40 years old, and so this woman wanted to marry him, a 40-year-old marrying a 25-year-old stud. And so he then asked his uncle and some of the others what he should do. And after uh, con bursting with some of those people that he trusted. He agreed then that he would uh, marry her. He disliked the worshiping of idols, and so he spent much of his time out on a mountain praying to God. Now, according to their history, in the year 610, when he was 40 years old, when he was meditating out on the mountain. This is when the angel appeared to him and revealed to him the message of God. Gabriel said to him, Read. And Muhammad replied, I am illiterate. Muhammad said, I cannot read. Gabriel embraced and released him. And then the first five verses, according to their history, the angel revealed to him the first five verses of the Quran. As Muhammad then started teaching, as he started proclaiming the concept of believing in one God, the people started turning against him. Because, as I said, they were practicing all of the idols and many other things. The people who once called him trustworthy, who once called him honest, are now boycotting him And there is now a plot to kill him. So after the death of his wife, and then after the death of his uncle, the people of Mecca plotted to kill him on various occasions. And he sought refuge then in the city of Medina. (coughs) Now, during the next several years, there was a series of battles and so there was uh, all kinds of controversies. And so there was finally a truce that was signed. But this truce was broken in 629 A.D. by the non-Muslims of Mecca. Muhammad then moved towards Mecca with 10,000 men. 10,000 would be a good-sized army. you think you could win the battle. And Muslims are very proud to tell you that Muhammad won the battle without there being one single bloodshed. And so this again elevates Muhammad to a new position. The treaty then that they had agreed to, no violence, no bloodshed, that treaty was broken in 629. And so we we find then that Muhammad dies in 632. He's 63 years old. And Muhammad's death brought a huge catastrophe among Muslims. People could not believe that Muhammad had left them forever. This was God's chosen. This was God's prophet. How could God allow him to die? Many of the followers were perplexed. Many of them did not know where to turn. They did not know what to do. And so many of them started spreading the lie that he wasn't dead. And so they started trying to convince people that he was still alive, he is just not with us. But at Muhammad's funeral, uh, Ubu Bekr, who was the most respected of all the followers, had this to say, O oh people, those of you who worship Muhammad, Muhammad has died. And those of you who worship God, God is still living. So he was trying to use the death of Muhammad to rally the people together. Now, this man that was making these comments at the funeral, he was then chosen as the first leader. Before his death, there was then appointed his successor. And so that's why when we were talking a few moments ago... There was this division over who is supposed to be the leader. Who is supposed to succeed then, Muhammad? During the ten years of his rule, Muslims conquered 2,200,000 miles of area. And if you try to look at all the places where they went, when you consider that uh, of Mesopotamia, parts of Persia, Iran, Egypt, Palestine, Syria, North Africa, Armenia is that it was spreading. Here's a map that you can see the Islamic world under Muhammad. You can see how the territories were later added. The goal was we will conquer the world. Now, that's not new. I mean, if we talk about the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, uh, almost every empire... Uh, said, we're going to spread, we're going to take over other countries. And so this was the spread of Islam. Now, it's impossible for me to buy a plane ticket and get on an airplane and fly uh, to Mecca. Non-Muslims are not allowed to enter that city. And so when we look at some of the places around the world, And, of course, today, when we look at Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, when we look at some of these locations, is that we can see the influence of Islam. Now, I was just recently in Indonesia. Uh, I was also in Malaysia. Those are Muslim countries. I have traveled to some countries. They have spit in my face. Uh, In Egypt, one man told me that his family celebrates 9-11. He said he wished that every American could be killed. And so many of them are continuing with this mindset is that we want to take over the world. That's what the Islamic symbol is today when you look at that of the crescent moon. And so it is representing the growth of the Islamic faith from small to great. By the 10th century, Islam dominated the half of the world known at that time. So, where do we differ? When we look at their religion, when we compare that to Judaism, when we compare that to Christianity, when we compare that to any of the other isms, where do we differ? Is that how does the Bible and the Quran differ? What was different in the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Muhammad, I would simply ask that all students here tonight, young or old, is that just try to study the subject with an open mind and try to obey God's final prophet. What are the identification marks in prophecy? Is the Savior prophet identified? Did God prophesy Muhammad to be another prophet? Was Jesus Christ the final prophet from God? These are questions that have to be dealt with. Now, I don't have time in just two nights that I'm with you to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. Muslims say Jesus did not resurrect because Jesus did not die. They said that Jesus simply got hot on the cross, the sun was bright, and He fainted. And so then they took Him off the cross and put Him into the cave. The cave was cool. And so after he rested in a cool cave for a while, then he regained consciousness and he was able to walk out. And so they deny that of the resurrection. And so we have to look at some of the things that they believe and compare that then to what we believe. Now, we also then, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about Muhammad we have to look at some of the identification marks of prophecy. I believe that the first verse of prophecy about Jesus was in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. It says that the seed of woman would defeat Christ. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel." Here's where we really start getting into a big difference. And that is when God made three promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now, I'm hoping that many of you here tonight know that story. I don't have time to read all the verses and don't have time to go into a lengthy discussion. Now, you remember that God told Abraham, I'm going to give you land. He says, I'm going to build of you a great big nation. And he says, and through you and through your genealogy is that there is going to come what we call the seed promise. I believe that is Jesus. Now, when we look at the Bible story, is that you remember that his sweet wife became impatient. She said, I'm too old to make babies. You're too old, Abraham, to fertilize the egg if I had one. You can't make babies. But then she later then decided, well, Abraham can do it, but I can't do it. So he said, look, I have a slave girl. You take Hagar and you have a child by her. You remember that story, don't you? And the son was born, Ishmael. Now, was that God's plan? Now, see, God's plan was the promised child was to come from Abraham and Sarah. But you see, the Muslims trace their history through Ishmael. Now, if we tried to start in Old Testament history and go Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, that brings us to ten generations. And then with Noah's sons, you go Shem, our said, and you come to Abraham, that's now the twentieth generation. Now, with Abraham, the promised child was Isaac. And through Isaac, we trace the genealogy to come to King David. And then through that genealogy to King David, we're going to come to the young virgin girl named Mary, and she's going to give birth to Jesus. The Muslims say, no, no, that was the second child. The first child from Hagar. The first child, Ishmael. And they trace through Ishmael, they trace the genealogy to Kedar. And they say through Kedar then is where that Muhammad was born and that was the promised son. That was the firstborn. Now, when we look at the promise, God made these three promises in Genesis chapter 12. But you see, the human plan was Ishmael. The divine plan was Isaac. And so there's a contrast here as to who was the promised child. The Quran says this about Ishmael. He raised the foundations of God's house. He purified God's house of devotion and prayer. He was one of the patriarchs. He was exalted with Elisha, Jonah, and Lot. He was a messenger and a prophet. Now, those are chapters and verses out of the Quran as to what they are saying about Ishmael. Now, what does the Bible say about Ishmael? The Bible says, "...the angel of the Lord also said to Hagar, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. That's in Genesis chapter 16. Now, in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, God said that He would raise up a prophet like Moses. Muslims say that was a prediction about Muhammad. You see, they accept that Moses was a prophet, and so they say that God had predicted that He would raise up then a prophet like Moses. You remember also when Jesus was getting ready to go away, when He was leaving the earth to ascend back into heaven, He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send somebody. Now, as a Christian, we believe that somebody was the Holy Spirit. Muslims say that that somebody that Jesus promised to send after He went back to heaven, they say that was Muhammad. And so they will often quote to you Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, to try to argue that that was God's prophecy and God's promise about Muhammad. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it said that whoever this was, Jesus was talking about, or that God was talking about, that he would be born of a virgin. A familiar verse to many of you here tonight. And Matthew chapter 1 shows that it happened just exactly the way that God said that it would happen. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Now, often when I am trying to study with people around the world, I explain to people that I have two missions when I'm traveling any country. I don't care whether I'm in China or whether I'm in Africa or whether I'm in Russia or whether I'm in Denmark, I have two purposes. That is, number one, there are some things that have been put into your head that the Bible doesn't teach. And I'm going to try to pull that out of your head. There are other things that the Bible does teach that maybe that you've never studied, and so I'm going to try to take it from the Bible and put it into your head. Now, let me give an example. If we were to travel around Columbia and knock on doors and say, Hello, I'm Bob. I'm taking a survey. I'd like to ask you two questions. What do you believe the Bible teaches about what fruit did Adam and Eve eat? What answer do you think most people are going to give? And most people are going to say an apple. And they're shocked when I say, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The second question, that I, and this is the one that really blows them out of the water... I asked the question, when Jesus was born and the wise men came to visit him, how many wise men were there? And 99% of the religious world are going to say three wise men. The Bible doesn't say that. In Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 1, and it says, in the days of King Herod, so as soon as we read that in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1, we know the political situation. King Herod. You see, that fulfills about 100 prophecies out of the Old Testament. That he was going to be born at the right time. But it says, in the days of King Herod, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, wait a minute. Have you had these two young men on the bicycles to come by your house? They're they're neatly dressed, uh, dark trousers and, and, and white shirt and they introduce themselves as elders so-and-so from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Have you met those guys? We often uh, refer to them as the Mormon elders. Did you know that the Book of Mormon says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem? Now, we have a contradiction here, don't we? The Book of Mormon says He was born in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says that He was born in Bethlehem. So how do we solve the problem? You see, we have to come back to what does the Bible say? Some things have been put into the head that need to be pulled out. Some things are in the Bible that need to be put into the head. And so the prophecy was that this promised child, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, going back to the book of Deuteronomy, going back to Isaiah, when we look at all of these prophecies about this child that was to come, God's chosen, this this person was to be born of a virgin. That was the prophecy, and Matthew chapter 1 shows that it happened. In verse 22, now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And so here in Matthew 1, taking us back to Isaiah chapter 7. In Micah chapter 5, it told us that He was to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah chapter 53, that He would die for our sins. All promises were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. You compare Genesis 12 to Matthew chapter 1. These are the generations of Jesus. These are the generations of the son of David. These are the generations of the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. But you see, it is starting here showing us these are the generations of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. That's why that the book of Matthew quotes over and over and over again from the Old Testament. And he's beginning by saying this is... The book of the generation of Jesus. Sometimes, if you're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses, they want you to read their books. Sometimes you're talking to Mormons, they want you to read their books. Sometimes you're talking to Buddhists, they want you to read their books. Sometimes when you're talking to Muslims, they say, we want you to read this book. That's the title of it. We believe in Jesus. That's the title of their book. But do they really is that they then, after saying, we believe in Jesus, this is what they say in one of their books. Allah negates from himself the possibility of his having any son or associate in his dominion, in his acting and decreeing, and in the worship of him. And so they're quite adamant that you're not to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. The Quran says, whatever communications we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring one better than it or like it. Do you not know that Allah has power over all things? That just simply tells us that contradictions are allowed in Islam. But when we look in the Bible, if He called them gods and whom the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken... A quote taken from John chapter 10 and verse 35 that no contradictions are allowed. So hurriedly, let's deal with the question, what is the ultimate aim? What is the ultimate goal of Islam? Many of the people that I have talked with sitting on the steps in Kuwait, talking to some people in Beirut, Lebanon, they said our aim is to get rid of every Jew and to get rid of every Christian. Now, I'm not here, and, and I want to repeat over and over over what Greg said in the very. We're not here tonight to argue politics. We're just simply talking as to what does the religion teach. But let me interrupt myself for just a moment. I don't care whether you're a member of the Catholic Church, you don't represent every Catholic. If you're a member of the Baptist Church, you don't represent every Baptist. If you're a member of the College View Church of Christ, your comment does not represent every member of every church of Christ. Do you understand that? And so when I'm talking to a Muslim in Egypt, he might not believe the same thing as a Muslim in the United Arab Emirates. I've made several trips to Dubai. Uh, I was there a few years ago, and since I was uh, number one, I'm white, number two, I'm American, and number three, I had a camera around my neck. They invited me to go with them that afternoon to watch them kill a woman. They wanted me to photograph it. They wanted me to bring it back to America and show people is that Muslims mean business. Now, my wife says that I'm going to wind up being in one of those countries and not being able to control my tongue, and I'm going to get myself killed over there. Because I did carry on the conversation when they invited me to go watch the woman being killed. I said, what was her crime? And they said, unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. She committed adultery. I said, oh, I've read that. Uh, I know the verses in the Koran that says that she's to be killed. But I said, maybe you've learned how to do something in Dubai that we've not learned in America. I said, we're so old-fashioned in America that in order to commit an adultery, it has to be a man and a woman. It has to have two people. And the Koran says you kill both of them. Why didn't you invite me to go watch you kill a woman? They'd already dug the pit. I mean, they have this big hole and they drop her down in there and that just from the shoulders up she's exposed and then everybody gathers around and they grab their rocks so and they start stoning her. I said, why did you invite me to go watch the woman being stoned but you didn't say anything about the man? If you're going to try to quote to me the Koran, then why don't you practice everything that the Koran says? But you see, their attitude is, is that we can change things as we want to change things as it works best for us. Now, I was in the country of Kuwait, and uh, I went to eat, of all places. I went to to get me a hamburger at the Hard Rock Cafe. And I got to talking to the manager, and he told me that when they first opened, they had several waitresses. They now cannot have any waitresses. Because uh, as the rock music was playing one of the girls came out of the kitchen carrying the platter, hamburger, and french fries and her finger was moving to the beat of the music. And so she was arrested for indecency. And they demanded that all of the women be fired. Now, in a country like this, when they say, you know, there is no alcohol allowed in the country of Kuwait. But when I got on the airplane to fly back to America, I felt sorry For the stewardesses on that airplane. Because so many of those Muslim men were yelling and screaming and hollering, quick, bring me a beer, quick, bring me, bring me vodka, quick, bring me some whiskey. And I said, where is the consistency to what that you're trying to teach? Now, in the religion of Islam, Judaism and Christianity meet their end. And so, every day, They live up to one of the five pillars of their faith. This is the confession that must be made. There is no God but Allah, and there is no prophet but Muhammad. This is the essential profession of faith. Now, I'm not going to have time to look at all of these, but when we look at their goal, is that, they will tell you, according to our understanding of Allah, according to our understanding of the Quran, it is a matter that you convert or you die. Make no doubt about it. While the media claims that Islam is a peaceful religion, their goal is world dominance. And so uh, we can see uh, what the Quran teaches one is an unbeliever who confesses Jesus as God. If you believe in deity, if you believe in Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you are an infidel. An unbeliever, an infidel, you are the devil is the word that they will use. One is an unbeliever who confesses that Jesus is God's Son. And one is forbidden heaven who confesses Jesus as God. And one deserves fire and grievous punishment who confesses Jesus. And so, what do you do with an unbeliever? Is that you fight. You destroy. That's the way that you grow. And let me just move fast and skip a few of these. Muhammad and Islam claimed that Muhammad's sword fulfills the prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so when we look at their attitude, they believe, they, they will quote scriptures to you, and they believe that they are doing what they're supposed to So here are your three options. You convert to Islam. You pay the protection tax and agree not to oppose Islam. Now, when uh, I was in Malaysia, we chose to run some newspaper ads about some of our classes by law. By law, I have to put in my newspaper ad, Lectures are for non-Muslims only. If I am caught trying to convert a Muslim, I can go to prison, or you can see me on the 6 o'clock news with one of those orange jumpsuits on as they're getting ready to cut my head off. That's how strong it is in some countries. Now, I just returned from my 25th trip to the Philippine Islands. Now, I have quit going down to the far south, down in Mindanao, because they started kidnapping lots and lots of Americans. There is a uh, Islamic rebel group that is trying to take one island and break away from the Philippine government And they're wanting that to become an Islamic country. And they're wanting to finance that by kidnapping Americans and then demanding a couple of million dollars ransom. And so I have quit going into that area for that very reason. Because they simply say, you are not allowed to teach, you are not allowed to convert. My good friend in Malaysia... Uh, he was born and reared there. He was working at the hospital. He got a grant to come to the United States for two years uh, to get trained to go back to work at the hospital. He was converted to Jesus Christ while he was in the United States. When he went back to Malaysia, he was very excited as a Christian. He was going to try to convert all of his family, all of his neighbors. And he was successful. He converted an aunt. He converted his father. He converted several of his neighbors. One night while he was asleep, There was a horrible noise. Someone broke down the door. They came into his bedroom. They had knives and they had screwdrivers and they jumped on his bed and they started stabbing him. And they left him in a pool of blood. They thought they had stabbed him enough that he would die from that loss of blood. But with every stab, they would say, Do not teach about Jesus Christ. Do not bring Christianity to this country. Do not try to convert any of your Muslim neighbors. And so these are the the three options for a non-Muslim. Now, let me fast forward down here to the bottom. Here's what I want you to consider. Now, which one do I hit? I don't know this computer. So anyway, I'll let you look at it that way. Christianity began and spread through evangelism. Islam began and spread through violence. Quite a difference. Salvation is promised to those who obey the gospel. Islam guarantees paradise to martyrs who fight for their cause. Now, if a soldier dies uh, trying to fight for Islam, then he is promised then the virgins in the next life. And we'll have something to say about that tomorrow night. Christianity is a religion of the grace of God. Islam is religion of works to Allah. And so, what am I recommending? My final two charts. Our pulpits must educate and must edify members regarding this religion. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Whether talking to an atheist, talking to a a Muslim, talking to a Buddhist, talking to a Hindu, we must show them love. We must talk to them about grace. There are people that are taking wrong positions in many different areas. There are some that are Muslim that are taking wrong positions. There are some that are Christians that are taking wrong positions about Muslims. Now, what would I like to do to the Muslims? I'd like to convert them all to Jesus Christ. You know, my my mission is not, hey, let's all get together tonight and go out and kill them all. No, that's not Christianity. And so we've got to try to make sure that we have the right understanding so that we can talk to the people. Now, one of the lessons that I sometimes do, what does the Koran say about Jesus? You say even if they would follow the Koran, we would have peace we would have respect and they would know who Jesus is. Well, I'm going to stop here. I've gone longer and further than I wanted to. This uh, machine slowed me down just a little bit, but uh, uh, we're going to take a break now.